Verse 3 on that is just incredible. Firmly to our soul's salvation witnesses your spirit, Lord, in your sacraments and word. There he sends true consolation, giving us the gift of faith that we fear not hell nor death. Well picked, Cantor in the back. Hits exactly what our texts are about today. Genesis 4 and the mark of Cain is the main kind of like big idea I want you to hold on to today. But it's actually just the prelude to the real big idea, which is the proper distinction between law and gospel. Well, some big fancy talk there. Uh, it's the difference between the devil's religion and Jesus' religion. And Ephesians chapter 2 is going to teach us about that. But before we get into all of that, we're just going to start with our Lord and this, this parable that he tells. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to do a couple things we're going to try to do every week. Flex our elbows here. We're going to do our identity check. You're at 4881 Kilburn Avenue in Rockford, Illinois. Why? What'd you come here for? Did you come out to see a, a man dressed in fine clothing? Uh, see, see some uh, teacher shaken by the wind telling you I'm not sure the world doesn't know? Or did you come out to get the word of God? That's what you're going to get. It's the St. Paul mindset. That's why I hope you have your Bible with you. I hope you have a hymnal with you. I hope you have a pen and paper with you. I hope you'll write something down today because it'll, it'll change you. It'll change you in ways you won't believe. Uh, so that's the identity check. Hymnal, Bible, these are important things. Now, the question this morning, ultimately, how did that get there? We're just going to leave you. Yeah, we don't need you. The question this morning is which God do you serve? And how would you know? And where do you look to find the other one, if you want to, if you're tired of serving mammon? Do you serve God or do you serve wisdom? That's the question. And how would you know the difference? And the Pharisee and the tax collector are going to get us started on this. But to tell that story, I really would like to just reinvert it. Pharisees, you either know what they are in some sort of Sunday school way that diminishes what they really were, or you have no idea what they are. So I really don't want to take time this morning to talk about the Pharisaic tradition and, and how rigorous it was and what amazingly good people they were really when it came to civilization and the neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'd rather just get into the fact that that's just it. They were good people. And you can get into the stuff about the tax collector being a sellout who works for the government who's not really your people and they got their thumb on you. There's all that kind of stuff too. But the point is he's a bad guy. So the story goes like this. Jesus told a story to some people who thought a lot about themselves. And as a, as a result of that, they were kind of jerks to everybody else. He said, two men went up somewhere to try to make God like them. A good man and a bad man. And the good man said this, thank God I'm a good man. And not like Jim, Bob, Harry, Jane, Beth, and Sam. It doesn't really matter whether or not it's you think you fast twice a week or you give tithes of what you get or you're not like this, that, or the other person. The point is you're walking around all day, every day, <laughs> looking at other people and be going, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm, oh man, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. We do this. We constantly are doing this. This is our sinful condition. The problem is we don't think we do this. And so we go, I'm glad I'm not that guy. Unless you happen to be a person who has found that the creation which God has made is so good and true that it's convinced you you're not. Now, not everyone knows that these days. They're trying really hard not to know that, to believe that mankind's good. But if, if you pay attention long enough, you'll find out we're not so good. 
Uh, and at a certain point, you come to God not as one who says, I'll make it, but as one who says, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad man. I know my sin. It's ever before me. You don't have to tell it to me. I wake up and I feel that I shouldn't be alive, <laughs> let alone have to think about what God has said I deserve for the things I do in my own head as I walk around judging everybody else. So I'm going to sit in the back with this other bad man and say, I'm a bad man. Be merciful to me, a bad man. Word sinner in the English there, right? Sinner. I, a poor, miserable, bad man. Jesus says, the man who knows that is already justified. Already. Where? Jesus on the cross, atonement. We can get all of that. The great inversion, the justification of the ungodly. I mean, there's so much there in scripture, but you can just have it in this moment. Jesus has declared. Do you think you're better than others? Well, you're not. Do you know you're not good enough for God? You're not, but you are now. Because <laughs> Jesus says so. And that is everything. It revolutionizes your mind, your heart, your worldview. But you can't flip it back again. And that's what Ephesians is going to really be about today. We'll come back to that. First, we're going to have a hard right out of this into the Proverbs. And that's because of the last thing that Jesus says. So if you, if you look down at verse 14, after he tells you that justification is a gift God gives to bad people, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, understanding that, we have to deal with the word humble and humiliation and how messed up that is for us today. You don't, you don't become humble by trying to be humble. You acknowledge that you're weak, you're powerless, you're angry, you, just, you aren't what you want to be. You're humiliated. If you can acknowledge that, you can actually grow and get better. If you can't, if all you can ever do is say, I'm not wrong, well, then you're just going to be wrong for a very long time. That's the wisdom of this. Now, Jesus is going to apply this to salvation, and we're going to do that as we move through. But let's just keep it with wisdom for a moment. Because what he's doing first is he's quoting the Proverbs. By paraphrase, but definitely doing so. Someone said this to me years ago, and I never gave it enough attention until just recently, that Jesus, if you're careful and you look at all the cross-references your Bible might have, he quotes the Proverbs all the time. That's interesting. How often do Lutherans quote or read the Proverbs? I'm going to go on a limb and say never, <laughs> unless you're that one unique duck who walked into a Christian bookstore and found the thing that had the Proverbs reading, reading schedule, right? Otherwise, you probably haven't found it yet. And this is what this, this is amazing to me. I mean, I'm, I'm convicting myself, first of all. Please don't think that I think I'm better than you in this one. But, but this is amazing. God wrote a book, a special little book. It's only 30 chapters long. It's about how to be smarter than everybody else in the world forever and ever, amen. And you, we're not reading it? You know what, it, you know what that makes us, right? The book says it makes us fools. And then the book says this. When you tell a fool this, he'll get mad and stay a fool. When you tell someone who is of God this, they'll realize I should get some wisdom. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, Proverbs is right there. It's just for the picking. And you can't just go in and have all your answers. But if you were to translate into your own words one proverb a day for one year, I guarantee you, you would not know not what to do. No matter what's going on. And I guarantee you, you would be able to smell the lies being told you a lot faster because it's there. I'll give you one. Do you know that the Proverbs say, he who winks plots deception? You know what says that? I remember reading that in my 20s thinking, oh, is that true? Could that be I mean, everybody? Every time? Well, think about it. What's a wink do? 
it hides from you the fact that my eye is closed. Why would I do that? The wink, by definition, is deception. Funny thing, huh? Well, I wink all the time. Why? Is the question to get mad at the proverb, or is the question to say, maybe I should rethink this thing, right? And that is wisdom, to rethink it. So, for the moment, let's just hear, I should be, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Proverbs 16, verse 18, so we can at least get Jesus, what he got, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled from. Let's get that from the Proverbs. That's Proverbs 16, verse 18. Here's what it says. And there's others like this one, but I think this is the most clear. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Look, verse 19 too, better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, Proverbs doesn't always do this, but it will often go in couplets where it says this and this, and you're meant to get the meaning by putting them together. So that's kind of what's going on here. And it's not so different from what I've already said. It just shows you that Jesus, again, is quoting the Proverbs, that the one who thinks I'm going to do it is guaranteed to not. And the one who knows I'm a creature and that's all that I am. And if I'm going to do it, God's going to do it. Well, that one's not as brittle. <laughs> a little more foundation to stand on there. There's so much here. Verse 16, right before, just look at this if you've got it open. How much better to get wisdom than gold? I challenge you to believe that this week. For like 10 seconds. How much better to get wisdom than gold? I don't have time to read the Proverbs. What are you trying to get? It's gold, right? It, to get understanding to be chosen over choice silver. Verse 17, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. This isn't about grace making you free to just wallow in your sin. He who keeps his way preserves his soul. So it even talks like the salvation is going to rest on you. Let's jump on that one. Verse 17b, he who keeps his way, that's wisdom's way, preserves his soul, his life. Uh-oh. Does that mean it's up to me to keep my way and preserve my life so that God will judge me whether I do it or not? Well, that would be to misunderstand Ephesians 2. We'll come back to that. But you just got to be able to do this every time you're in the Old Testament. It can't mean that. It can't mean you're supposed to save yourself. So then what does it mean? I'll read it again. He who keeps his way preserves his soul. Well, he would be me. He, his way would be Jesus. And my soul would be my breathing body. So all it says is that if you believe in Jesus, you're going to rise from the dead. Oh, shocking, right? Uh, he is risen. You are paid for. You're immortal now. All that stuff. So, but it's there. It's there. That the one who is in God preserves life. That the highway that God gives is a life without evil in it. Or at least knowing how to call evil what it is. And so on. And so on. Verse 20, he who heeds the word wisely will find good. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. The wise in heart will be called prudent, and sweetness of lips increases learning. Understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it. But the correction of fools is folly. The fool hears the wisdom and says, I ain't got time for that. Well, then you won't have time for Genesis 4, I'll tell you that. Let's turn to Genesis 4. This is a beast. It's a great beast, but buckle in. we got a lot to do. Mm -mm -mm. Did I forget anything? No, no. 
Ah, I could say this. There is an interesting piece here. You could almost know this right away. We're coming from the good man and the bad man in the temple, Pharisee and tax collector, right? That's Jesus' story. And you know, or you should get to know, that the one-year lectionary that we're going to be more or less using for at least the next year, uh, it always tries to pair the gospel reading with an Old Testament story in a way that, you know, you'd have to be a donkey not to see the overlap. So, Pharisee, tax collector, Cain and Abel. From the course of the temple and the sacrifices there to the first sacrifice after the fall. It's kind of an important connection point. You might even ask the question, why is it even there? Where do these sacrifices come from and what are they for? We're going to do that a little bit. But I'm also going to make things a little, little weird for you. We're going to do it in reverse. I want you to get the Mark of Cain concept first. And then I want you to get where it came from. So in the text that runs from verse 1 to 15, we're going to start at verse 9 and go to the end. Just call that chapter 2, right? Chapter 2 of Genesis 4. And then we're going to go back and we'll pick up chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is then the event of the first sacrifice. That's the first part. And then there is the courtroom drama result of the fallout. That's what we're going to zoom in on first. Why? Because... In the book of Genesis, one, two, three, four, each chapter, you're having God say something that we should call an oracle or an ultimate prophecy, a divine starting point of truth. And he does it one, two, three, four. The first one, let there be light, right? The second one, man is made distinct. The third one is this fall thing. And we've spent a lot of time on this in the last couple of years. Thorns start growing. Animals start eating each other. Things changed in a real, real way. And I can't really tell you what that means, but I know it would have felt different. It would have looked different. We're not in paradise anymore, but it wasn't done getting bad yet. And that's what happens in Genesis 4. And it brings us to the question of what is that mark of Cain? But let's take it from the text one piece at a time and see if I can show it to you. First, what I want you to notice is this. I want you to remember that after Adam eats the fruit, there's a courtroom scene and an oracle. And now after Cain kills Abel, there's a courtroom scene and an oracle. Yeah? And what I want to think about here, and if you've got Genesis 3 right on the page, you can kind of flip back and forth and find it in your Bible, that when God comes to look for the sinner, he kind of does the same thing both times, but almost, but not. And it's in the difference that something really opens up. So when he comes and he is looking for Adam, he says to Adam, where are you? Adam's hiding. Where are you? When he comes to find Cain, he doesn't say, where are you? He says, where is your brother? So we've moved from the first commandment, the greatest commandment, to love God above all things, which we broke in chapter 3, to the second that is like it, greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And we find right off the bat, we're, we're, we're breaking the laws that weren't even written yet. We're making the reason for the law to be written, is one way to say it. We're creating hate. And that's kind of the big thing of the second question. So he says, Adam, where are you? Adam says, I'm hiding because I'm afraid of you. And he says, well, have you eaten of the tree? Have you? Have you done something that I as God pre-imagined, pre-conceived, predestined as a possibility in existence? There is a tree that exists that men can eat and it is there. Don't eat it, please. It will kill you. But God 
However you want to look at that, and I'll tell you, it was promised. We've talked about that before. However you want to look at that, God put that there. So he comes and says, have you done this thing that I created? When he comes to Cain, he does not say, have you done this? He says, what have you done? And please hear the dramatic difference. This is the difference between good and evil. Adam did something that was good evilly. He did it wrong with a good thing. Cain does not. Cain removes the good thing. He does an evil that makes the good cease to be. And then this way, can you see, this is old philosophy from St. Augustine, that evil doesn't even really exist. I mean, it does as a thing that's happening, but it doesn't. It never makes anything. It just ruins everything. It's a remover, not an adder. It's a negative sum reality, not a positive sum. It doesn't give. God gives. Evil removes. What have you done? You created murder. I didn't even think that was possible, God says. How could you not? You're omnipresent. That's a philosophical argument for a skeptic. Save it for another time. God says, I didn't plan that. I did not plan that. And now, here's the result. Listen to this. The ground is screaming to me because of his blood. The earth itself, the animals, the trees, the fish, all the whole creation is like, like, what just happened? What did just happen? You are now cursed from the ground. It has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. I'm going to stop right there. There's so much there, but... You have a couple ways to look at this. I don't want to insist that you would accept my version. Uh, it, it has to venture at some point into imagination to see how these things tie up as human civilization would have made it happen. So when the thorns start growing on the roses, do all the apples turn into crab apples at that point? And all the crops start getting eaten by pests at that point? Or does it wait until this point? where he says, because of the blood of Abel, now the land won't produce. And a lot of that has to do with what you think the mark of Cain is. If you think the mark of Cain is something that is here still among us, then you would think that the ground was cursed by him specifically. That's actually what I hold to, what I think now. Uh, however, you could also believe that the mark of Cain is something that is no longer among us, and good Lutherans believe this, so you're free to. Um, I've heard everything from it's a birthmark that people who are truly Korean have that then disappears after they're two or something. So you can't know about it, but it, I, I don't know. I heard that one told to me. Um, I've, I've heard the, the classic one from American history, unfortunately, is that it is the Africans, the black man who should be enslaved, which of course is nonsense. They're the sons of Ham, not the sons of Cain. If you know your Bible, you just call you know, poo on that one right away. So you, you hear all those things. The other option is that the mark of Cain is a physical mark that's put on Cain alone and dies just with him. So he had some sort of like crazy scarring or who knows what it was. So when everybody would find him, they wouldn't kill him. All of that's fine. I just don't think it tells the story very well at all. It doesn't explain much of anything as opposed to, as opposed to what I'm going to suggest to you now. That Cain who is the guy growing the food, so far as they're eating food from the ground for the family, has just somehow, we'll come back to how, made it so it doesn't work anymore. And however this family is here, however many other kids have been born yet, and we know they are born, there is a civilization growing, he now thinks this group of people is so hateful, they're going to kill me for taking away the food. That's what he says. He becomes afraid of the very thing he created, murder, death at the hands of his brother. 
Let me suggest to you that that's the mark of Cain. Fear of your brother. Fear of men. And it has everything to do with whether or not you trust God to give you your food. Ponder that for a moment. Cain's punishment is more than he can bear. It will make him a wanderer on the earth. In just a couple of chapters, we'll have men coming together after the flood, refusing to be wanderers on the earth and building a tower so as to make a name for themselves. This story isn't over. God has another curse to bring, Babel, our language. It will continue to collapse through history, at least until this guy Jesus shows up. We can talk about what that means later, but see this for what it is. The mark of Cain, if it is not some birthmark that went away, is in fact the spiritual fear of man. And that to submit to it is to do what God told Cain not to do, is to let your sin, your bad man, rule you. Let's go back to the story and see how that happened to him. Yeah? So going back to verses 1 through 9. Excuse me, 8. And let me do a little setup here. I want you to imagine a different time period for a second. Let's jump to the era of the kings. You don't have to do too much work. You know the name Elijah, even if you don't know who he is. He got in a big chariot, made a fire once, and flew off with some fire horses into the sky. I mean, it's kind of sweet, really. Um, Before that happened, um, he had another really fiery experience. Uh, He was one of the faithful preachers in Judea during the time, excuse me, in Israel, northern kingdom, during the time of uh, a lady named Jezebel, a wicked queen, who had it as her goal to kill faithful preachers. It was really her favorite thing to do. It was like a generations-old animosity from when her kingdom that she got married into this place out of was previously conquered and beat up a couple generations ago in the name of God. And she hates this God as a result. And so she wants to destroy everything to do with this God. And even her own daughter will go on a purge against her own children to try to end the line of David. That's how wicked this woman is. In any case, so she's out there with these paid, expensive, high quality, I don't know, prophets. And they're telling everybody, ah, Jezebel knows who God is. Do yoga with her or whatever. It really doesn't matter. Yoga is not the issue. But you'll go follow her story. And Elijah is driven by God to say, hey, How about we stop arguing about it? I'll build an altar. You'll build an altar. I'll talk to my God. You'll talk to your God. One of them will show up. Maybe they'll fight. That'd be cool. They do it. They got 400 of their prophets. They've built this huge altar. They're running around it in circles. They're slashing their bodies so that they bleed because they believe that blood is necessary and sacrifice for their God. And and Elijah, this is one of the best moments in the Bible. If you don't mind some potty language, I'll use the nice kind, but the Hebrew is actually the other kind. He says, you know, is he on the toilet? Your God, is that that where he is? He, He might be indisposed at the moment. That's Elijah saying that. And then what does he do? He tells all of the people around him, go get some water. Cover my altar with water. Oh, let's dig a ditch. Let's fill it with water. Now, Lord Jesus, ultimately, are you the true God? Fire, bam, boom, consumes it all, consumes the water, jumps to the other altar, eats that too. (laughs) Uh, Story goes on, it's pretty intense. All 400 guys get their throat slit by the end of it. We're gonna leave that behind. It's a good movie, I suppose, right? We're gonna leave that behind and jump to this moment and think that this moment's the same moment, but different. It's the same idea. Same idea. It is a prophet's duel. It is a fight between two men of two different religions, although I don't know that Abel meant it to be. I can't tell you he meant it to be. But I want you to think of it this way. And it all has to do with the birth order and the names of these two boys. So all of this that I'm imagining, I'm pulling out of their names. I'm going to try to show you how I do this. 
Okay, so it says in verse 1 that Adam knew Eve, his wife. Stop right there. No names in the Bible are just names. They're words of the language. So what it says is now dirt man or the ground or the land or that kind of thing, whatever you want to call Adam, dust, uh, dusty guy, he knew life is what Eve means. He knew life, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And I'll tell you about Cain in a moment, but Eve's name is life because of offspring, because of childbearing, because of the promise that from a woman will come Jesus. So that's why she gets that name life. She conceives and she bears this guy named Cain. And what is there? There's a chicken place named Cain's or something, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird name. Um, I don't, we don't hear it a lot. We don't even say it, right? The Hebrew is more like Cain, which sounds a little more like intense, right? Cain. Um, that word's meaning is a tougher one to get around. And we have to run it through what the rest of verse one says. So in the English, it has this for you. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now there's a lot of mm, creative translation going on in that. And it's because there's no good way to translate this phrase. She says, I have gotten a man, Yahweh, you know, the Lord. What does she mean by that? And I'm not even sure. I mean, does she mean she thinks this is the incarnate son of God? There are many who would say that, church fathers as well. I, I'm not really necessarily against that. But what I do know is you can take that with the help of the Lord and you can just scratch it out because it's not what the Bible says. It really doesn't say that at all. She's not, and I, I'm going to tell you from the story, she is not proclaiming the goodness and grace of God. Not even for a minute. The rest of the guy's name is, I did it. I got it. I won. What's his name? Cain. It's the war cry, right? I have begotten would be another way to say it. Now, you might think, well, she's just trusting the promises. It's just Jesus to come. Okay, look at what she names the next kid. Abel. You know what Abel means? Useless. Can you imagine a world where the sin is so real and they're so unregenerate that they know the promise externally that a boy will be born who will save them? There he is. Yes, we're finally going to stop fighting every night and having to deal with all this stuff. Let's raise that kid fast. Dude, you're the savior. We don't even know how, but grow up and do it. Oh, what's this other? We've got to feed him too? Well, he can stick around. Maybe he'll go back with us to paradise. Can you imagine that? I think that's what happened, at least to some extent, because of what happens next. Because in the course of time, there comes this sacrificial event based upon the work that they do in verse 2. Now, we can get really tangential on this, but I do want to give you some of it. The distinction between uh, the, the, their jobs. That Abel keeps the sheep and Cain works the ground. Now, remember, they've come out of the Garden of Eden and either it's really hard to eat and you work it out of the ground and it's generally fruit. Or it's really easy to eat. Um, and you still work it out of the ground like a gardener would, like a Japanese garden. So Cain's either out there like, really by the sweat of his brow, barely making dinner, or he's out there with Japanese gardens bringing out sweet fruits for family every night. I don't know which one it is. Actually, I think I do, but I can't tell you you have to believe it. I think it's the one where he's actually got pretty good produce coming along. It's not too hard. Uh, the, the ground is still producing its strength that hasn't been taken from him yet. Okay, So he's doing that. Then what is Abel doing with, with the sheep? Like, what, what point is that? Especially since we know that you do not eat meat yet. Like humans don't. And we won't until after the flood. But we're not made to, we're not supposed to, and the sheep aren't supposed to be eaten either. For all we knew, they were poisonous until God changed it after the flood. And I don't know. 
but I know that they wouldn't have been eating it yet. So why are they keeping the sheep? And that, you got to go back to Genesis 3 and see that not so much that there was a sacrifice instituted there, although I've said it that way before, I won't again, not so much that there was a sacrifice instituted by God there, but that when God strips the lamb or goat of its skin and puts the blood and the skin on them to hide their nakedness and makes them clothing, they at least realize we need sheep for clothing. Uh, there's a little kind of cool thing that goes right with this if you know your, uh, your, your horticulture, that a ruminant animal, a sheep, even a deer, cows especially too, when not overloading the land, are like, they're kind of like overland um, uh, catfish. Uh, they clean up the ground. And so even if you want to have good crop sharing and Abel knows what he's doing and, and, and Cain knows what he's doing, working together is a good thing. There's all sorts of reasons for this to be here. What's not in any of this is the command to bring a sacrifice. There's never a command to bring a sacrifice, not written at least. So if you want to believe there's a command to bring a sacrifice, just know you have to imagine that that's true. You can't hold anybody else to that. I'm going to say it's not true at this point. There's no command to bring a sacrifice. And yet in the course of time, Cain does. Well, he's been being told his whole life he's the savior, right? He's supposed to take everybody back into paradise. So he's worked real hard. And if a man by himself works real hard to figure out how he shall save himself, what's he going to do? He's going to make up a sacrifice. That's what we do. It's wrong. That's what we do. Now, there's some key shift of the language behind the English here I'm going to try to give you. So when it says Cain brought to the Lord an offering, that word is minka in Hebrew, minka. It's going to show up two more times. Cain brought to the Lord a minka, a gift, an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the not minka, different firstborn of his flock and their fat. I'll come back to that. The Lord had regard for Abel and his minkah. Abel didn't bring a minkah. He doesn't have a minkah. But the Lord had regard for him and his minkah. How's that? But for Cain and his minkah, he had no regard. Now you might say, but pastor, he did bring the sheep. It doesn't say it's a minkah. It just says that it's the firstborn and the fat one. Which means, again, the Lamb without blemish, basically, in short. So now imagine this too, though. I love this picture. So here we are. Let's say, I mean, we don't know how many people have been here, but we know they're not like 10-year-olds anymore, right? So they're old enough that somebody's gotten married. There's probably some kids lying around. I mean, start, they're like, oh, we got more of this. Hey, Cain, when are you going to get this thing done? Next year, August 15th, on a hill outside Jerusalem. End of the world, I promise. Let's go. Everyone comes. They're there that day, and he's ready. He's got the best of his produce. I mean, it doesn't say he's got the worst, right? Isn't that funny? All the pietistic translations of this that try to make it about how you're supposed to bring your heart to God, they all say, like, he brought the, he brought the worst of the fruit of the ground. It doesn't say that. It never says that. It just says he brought fruit. It doesn't say the worst fruit, the last fruit. I mean, it was the best fruit. Why not? He's trying to save the world. He's not going to cheat. It's about his pride right now, not about how much he can steal. So he brings this amazing thing, and, and he's trying to use the very thing that ruined the world, the crops that we ate, to bring it back. Who knows how he burned it? I don't know. But then now here comes Useless, and no one thought he was supposed to be there. And Useless is leading this little lamb up to the altar and puts the little lamb on the altar. And then, I mean, how do you see it? Fire comes out of heaven and eats the lamb and leaves the crops on the altar? Something happened like that. Now put yourself in Cain's shoes. I know how it feels when I've gotten ready for something and I'm all set to go and something goes wrong and everyone's watching. 
my face would feel hot and red too. And then if God talked to me in front of everybody, why are you angry? Why are you ashamed? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Didn't I just try to do well, God? He did the wrong well, right? Let's come back to that. Works grace. Works grace. It's not about whether you do good. It's whether you believe good. If you do not do well, if you let yourself believe in a God that is not the true God, then badness, sin is crouching at the door and it wants you, it hungers for you. You must rule over it. And rather than go too far off course there, please just flip to Ephesians 2 to talk about the badness of sin and its desire for you because we are way too asleep, way too asleep on this guy. Mm. Mm. We'll leave that there. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Circle it, highlight it, put a note by it. It is a verse you need to memorize. You must. John 3, 16, if you don't know it, you need to memorize that one too. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You got to be able to tell yourself that sometimes. And the same is true for this. By grace, you have been saved. Through faith. And this, not of yourselves, but a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. If anything goes with you today, that phrase is the one I want you to take. But to get there and understand the beauty of it, we're going to flip and stick with what we're being saved from. Which is what the first part of Ephesians 2 is about. And we're going to slow way down on some of these words. Because I really want to de-vanillaize the text. Verse 1 says, you were dead. I mean, that sounds kind of plain and boring. How am I dead? Like, I'm not really cold and on a table yet. I guess if I don't shower for three days, you might notice. So there's something decayish going on around me. But how would I even know this? Why would I believe this? And and the word dead, if you tell your neighbor they're dead, they're not going to believe you. So what's he getting at here? Let me suggest to you that the point is not just that you're already dead. You are, but it's more like being undead. It goes zombie on you here again. It's like you're dead, but you don't know it yet. You're necrotic. You're dripping parts of you everywhere you go. Mostly your spirit for the moment, but eventually your body follows. That's what you were, it says. Dead, necrotic. In the trespasses of your sins. Now, I really want you to latch on to this. That word trespasses, I did a dive on that today, or this week. And the, the, the base word it's rooted on is a picture. It's an image. It's the image of slipping on a slippery surface. Think banana peel. Think by the pool, your kid's running. Oh, no. Right? The point is, the ground is dangerous. You know how the ice can be if you don't see it. Right? Okay? So, you were necrotic in the slippery feet of your spirits. That in the natural way, you go, whoopsie, wrongsie, evilsie, you're bringing about death to yourself and to everybody else. And that's all that you ever were, he says, like the rest of mankind. Because the course of this world, that's in verse one again, right at the top of it. That's what happens in this world. Now, while he's going to talk about all mankind being like this, the fact is all mankind are saved from this. But not everything is saved from this. Not everything is going to be restored on the last day. What the rest of verse 1 talks about will not be restored. Both the demon and his friends, 
and any humans who want to be with him. And the way that it talks about it, again, I want to give you some new language for it because it's kind of entrenched in this very Greek wooden translation that doesn't connect to us today. So he says, following the course of this world. What does that mean? We would call that the era, the epoch, the generation, the way things are going, the season. You could call it all of those things. But the general motion of this world. If you're following the general motion of this world, then you are following the prince of the power of the air. And when I said it's got some weird Greek stuff in it, that's what I'm talking about. So if you were like back in Rome or and you're going to find, and you might even have someone saying this is Christianity to you, but you got to learn all these angel beings. You got to learn how to become one of a bunch of schism. One of the great angel beings would have been the prince of the power of the air. Now, for your purposes today, you really we don't care what they thought about the prince of the power of the air so much. Well, that might be interesting. What I want you to get is that this is talking about Lucifer. This is talking about the devil. This is talking about Satan. I don't care how you think about it. There is a wicked, fallen, supernatural, spiritual being who's, in fact, running this planet. Now, the course of the world, the course of the prince of darkness, that wicked spirit, now at work, and it calls them the sons of disobedience. That's such a petty way of saying it. And the word is apathy. They have no heart. They've lost faith. Following the devil as he speaks a spirit that has no faith, among whom we all once lived. That is, we're born into this. We're born into this. And what does he call it? The passion of the flesh, the desire of the body, the desire of the mind that makes us children of wrath. The birthright that you have from Adam means that your instinct is violence. It may not be physical violence, but it will be violence. Your natural instinct, you've inherited it. And because you've also retained with all mankind the superpower, so far as the animals are concerned, to both imagine the future and make it happen with your hands and your mind and your work, we are now thereby very capable of making this world incredibly worse than it already is. That's what it means to be called children of wrath. That by the pursuits of our minds and our hearts, we actually make it not better, but worse. We think it'll be better. We say it'll be better. We tell ourselves it's better, but it's worse. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is missing? Faith, trust, knowing who Jesus is. And so people really believe that staying alive in a coma with a tube down your throat, pooping out of a bag, is worth it. Think about it. Why are you afraid of dying at that point? I was thinking about coffee this week. Now, coffee is a drug I take that'll probably help kill me at some point. It's you know, connected to hypertension, all that, stress. There's a drug I take that might kill me but I wouldn't want to live without it. And I was thinking about how many Americans are taking drugs that will keep them alive but make it worse while you're here. I'm not saying don't take your drugs. I'm not saying there aren't good medicines. There's lots of them. I'm asking what you're afraid of. That's all. And if you're afraid of death, you don't have to be. 
That's all. We were born one with them, inheriting their violence of instinct, capable of supernatural wrath, simply by being what we already are. But the words of life, verse 4 through 6, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were necrotic with our slippery feet, he has resurrected us with Jesus by grace. By grace. Now, before I go in that direction, I want to give you one. This is a pagan trick. It's really useful. Pagans know stuff sometimes. They, they are so stuck having to save themselves, they will give more attention to things than we will at times. And the Stoics were this old philosophical group that really wanted to get rid of suffering in their own lives. And they found some tips and tricks for how to think about life to remove suffering. And here's one of them. It's, it's, it's really quite phenomenal. It's something like a Jedi mind trick, too, if you, if you know what that means. Um, if you have the thought... I would like to have a better day today. That's a painful, negative, depressing thought. Whereas if you have the thought, today was hard, that's actually a positive, not depressing thought. It alleviates the pain. This creates the unique thing that the more you tell yourself you're going to get better, the more depressed you're going to become. And the more you just acknowledge that you're probably going to be the way you are, to some extent, the more able you might be to actually change. I'm a poor, miserable sinner, right? It's that kind of thing. Now, with that in your mind, that trying to be good doesn't help us, let's look at what God says he's doing in verses four and following, right? Look at the focus of what he's done. Not only has he, verse six, raised you, right? Wakened you from the dead right now, not your body that's gonna raise later. That's another thing. Raised you right now in Jesus with your mind from the dead. But he's also enthroned you. It says, seated you with him in the heavenly places. You're on the throne with Jesus in heaven right now. How? He says so, that's how. You're about to eat his body. How could you not be? And this is also, there's, there's more than this too, right? So the seat of Jesus on the throne at the right hand of God, so far as the visions of the prophets are concerned, is still outside of the internal reality of the Trinity. So when Isaiah is looking up, you know, the pre-incarnate son of God is still like behind the mask of what he sees as God. But now Jesus went behind that mask into the eminence of the Trinity. He took mankind with him, which means everyone who's in him is actually tied to God. Now you can get really weird about this. Uh, I believe the most mistaken phrase is that God became man, that man might become God. You really don't want to go that route. But the fact is that man, Jesus, is God. And now you're one with him, which doesn't make you the God, but it makes you godly. A God, lower G. Let's just say Christian for today. One who's been chosen, anointed, all those things. That's that seated in the highest places. Why? Verse 7, this is so good. It's like the heart of the whole thing. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, that's the next epoch, after the resurrection, so that after the resurrection, he can show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you. Right now, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness is hindered by your own sin, which is ultimately your own fear of death and belief you need to fix the world. And the reason he's going to save you is so that both of those things can go away and you can just have the world the way it was supposed to be. And it's going to be incredible when he comes back. So much so that frankly, it's worth dying today if it were to come back today. It'd be really worth it. 
That's the grace and kindness he has toward you in Jesus. Now, then we get to our, our very famous verses, right? I would hope they're famous verses. That by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself, it's a gift. Now, there's a couple ways you can toy with this here, but I'm just going to tell you the one you have to get because it's right. Which is that the it in it is a gift is referring to the faith in the previous sentence and not the grace without the faith. It's not as though God gives you grace and now you've got to add faith to it. It's that God gives you grace and faith grows out of it. And the whole thing is a gift and that if it were not, you'd think it was about you. Which you know, right? So obviously, I pat myself on the back just about everything. So it's not of works, lest no one should boast. That's actually the problem in the first place, trying to make a world better than it really was, didn't need to be. It was created good. We tried to improve it. We broke it. He doesn't want any more of that from us. He doesn't want it now either. He wants instead a different kind of people. And this is where verse 10 becomes the one that, again, it gets so abused. People who don't like the proper distinction between law and gospel, which means they don't like it when I just leave it with you, that grace saves you, period, you're done, go home. People that don't like that because they think they have to do something, tied to the law, they'll grab on to verse 10 and they'll try to make verses 8 and 9 go away. They'll say, well, verse 8 and 9 is about grace, but verse 10 is about works, so you got to get all about works. Go do some more works. Funniest thing about works, isn't it weird that I would talk about how we should do more good works? It kind of sounds like a pain. Like, they're not good then, right? <laughs> like, why would they be good works if they're a pain? Unless we just misunderstood pain somehow, I suppose. But it's not about how Christians need to be a type of people who are worried about good works. Oh no, we haven't done enough today. I've got to fill my measure up of good works. That's the legalistic way to look at it. What Paul's talking about here is so much better. Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ. So just take that word created and push it back into workmanship. You are his creation. Not just made long ago, born of Adam. Now, baptized by water and the Spirit, you are his new creation. You think the Almighty God makes creations and they just kind of sit there on a, on a log, never change, never do anything, feel the same way they are, hold their sin tightly? No, he doesn't. He won't let you hold on. And is it going to be all in a magical moment where you're just fine? No. It's going to be the constant humiliation of coming to the cross, saying, I'm the bad man, you're the good man. And yet the more that that is said, the more he's going to say, that's right, and I've got you. And the more that you know that, the creation that he's making in you when you go out these doors will not be one that desires more evil. You won't be able to handle it anymore. You'll despise the sin living within you. You'll start to want to beat your breast and say, would that the Lord come today and save us from this. One more thing on that, though, too. This is so good. So verse 10, he created us, right, his workmanship, for the good that we're going to live in now while we wait for his return. That good that we're in now while we wait for his return, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in it. What that means is what Psalm 121 says in his last verse, that Jesus Christ directs your feet wherever you go from now until the day that you die, which he has planned for you. Every morning I say a version of that to myself. I say the whole psalm. Jesus Christ directs my feet 
both venture and retreat from this time forth and even forevermore. I try to look at my toes. I try to imagine where my toes are going to go today that I didn't plan to go and the places I plan to go. I try to imagine how I know I'll get to places and be mad. I'll get to places and stub my toe. <laughs> I do it a lot, actually. Uh, I got big feet. And I try to imagine how every one of those temptations, those struggles, those falls, he already knows they're there. And he didn't put them there to make me fall. He put them there to teach me how to get up by looking at him. By trusting him to be enough. So that I know that if I venture out in great zeal, as I want to do, and if I have to retreat, because I just messed it up, didn't go the way I wanted it to go at all. Not because God's against me. I might have been against God, but he's not against me either way. He just wants me to sit there, listen again to grace, and remember that all that I do will never be more than what he's already done for me. Which never makes me not want to try again, amazingly. It just makes me glad that I have a God who's behind me who said that even when you lose, it's because I was using it for good. And when you can trust that, well, the, the losing does not hurt the same way. The same way. The trail of our steps are all at his direction. Identity check. Why are you here at 4881 Kilburn? It's because you know he is risen. It's because you know you are paid for. It's because you know you cannot die now. It's because you know that he won't be long anyway. It's because you know that water is a shield on your arm wherever you go. It's because you know that this bread and wine is the medicine of immortality. Jesus rose from the dead. You, in the necrotic, slippery nature of your feet, can now see the slippery nature of your feet and live as those who are also risen already. It's a marvel. Faith alone, nothing more. Jesus alone, always. In Jesus' name, amen.